it's pretty fascinating that the three people who last year were telling you that inflation was transitory, that would be Powell, Yellen, and Biden, <laughs> are all now saying that we're not in a recession. Not only are we not, we're not going to be in one. And that's very hard to stomach when you just look at some of the data points. Welcome back. Best money I ever spent. Episode 14. This week, we do something a little bit different. Our guest is Charlie Bellello. He's the founder and CEO of Compound Advisors. He's someone who's had a career as an investor and a writer, and you've probably seen his tweets or seen him on CNBC or some of the other networks talking about the markets. But at the end of the day, he's just this young, incredibly smart researcher and portfolio manager who has some of the smartest takes on money in the direction of the market out of anyone I've ever talked to. And above all else, he can explain to anyone at any level of financial literacy some of the most complex themes and issues affecting your cash and the markets. Long story short, we live in some insane times. Charlie is the guy to lay out the facts and make sense of it. And he does it on this episode really well. And as always, especially on this episode, nothing discussed should be considered financial advice. You shouldn't make any financial decisions based on any of the information presented here. And with that, episode 14 of The Best Money I Ever Spent, presented by Rally, with one of the smartest people in my phone and one of the best follows on Twitter, Compound Advisors, Charlie Bellello. Charlie, thank you so much for, uh, for coming on, my friend. Absolutely. Good to be with you, Rob. Always, always. So I just recorded the intro to this episode. And uh, in there, I talked a bit about you and your background a little bit. And I, I want to get into all that. But I described you, and you've heard this from me before, as like one of the smartest people I know. I think a lot of people would say that. But one of the big reasons that I truly believe that is because you have this skill to kind of quickly analyze scenarios like the public and the private markets and synthesize your conclusions down to something that anyone can understand and kind of apply it to regular people. So anyone who cares about money but doesn't follow Charlie on Twitter or subscribe to his newsletter or watch him on YouTube is doing themselves a disservice right now. He kind of gives away for free, so you should definitely do it now before he starts charging hundreds of thousands uh -huh. of dollars for it. But that said, I want to get into, um, I want to do this episode a little bit differently, but I want to start quickly with a, a bit of the Charlie Bellello story. You're the CEO of Compound Advisors. You've got um, a law degree, an MBA. You're also a CPA. You've been at other firms at a management level. But you're also still young. And more than anything else, you're like a researcher at a granular level when it comes to all things finance. Bridge the gap a bit, if you can, between the Fordham University Charlie and the Charlie now. Give listeners a little bit of that journey, if you could. And how'd you end up here? Yeah, Matt. Well, being an investor is, is some parts uh, math, it's some parts philosophy, it's some parts psychology, it's some parts... Uh, law and figuring out accounting and boring stuff. So I think it's a combination <laughs> of everything, but more than anything else, it's just being curious, right? And that's really what drew me to it. And so uh, in, as an investor, the, every day is different. Every scenario is different. And what you're trying to do more than anything else is figure out where you are in that big picture, right? Where is the risk? Where is the reward as best as you can? And understand that so much of this is unpredictable. So if you're not humble coming into this, you're going to be humbled at some point very quickly. That's right? very, very true. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is the unpredictable nature. Everybody, we talked about this a bit in the past. If you watch CNBC or or Fox News or Bloomberg, and you've you've always been like one of the, the figures that pops on to any of these broadcasts, and it's really easy to get wrapped up in what you're saying. 
and you think about it very um, kind of even keel. But a lot of it has always been, especially in times like this, if it's a CNBC, for example, it's like market down 300 points because of, and it's always like the idea that a thing happened and we have mm. to describe it. Do you think in yeah. times like this with that unpredictability that that we should still be doing that? Or you think this is something where there's so many other elements that are affecting the day-to-day -day and affecting everybody's money that it's impossible to tie thing that happened here to some event from the day before? Do you think we've gone too far with that at this point? I think that you have to take it for what it is. Uh, the financial content, or as, as far as the major news media, is entertainment, right? It's eyeballs, it's <laughs> clicks, it's... They don't have an appreciation for what we're doing here, having a conversation, long form. They want something that will immediately keep someone watching or get someone to watch. They uh, they like forecasts, bold predictions. The bolder, the better. It doesn't matter. No one ever comes back on and they say, well, what happened the last time when you predicted <laughs> well, What happened three days ago yeah. when you were on and said something different? Yeah. 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 So you can, you know, as long as you're making an extreme uh, statement, uh, that's that's what uh, it sells for that media. But I think, as we've talked about, the younger generation, that's changing. And I think uh, there's a real demand for more in-depth, honest, uh, trustful content. And that uh, that really begins and ends with saying, uh, you know, if you, you don't know why sometimes the market is going down. Right? They can't you can't write yeah. that headline. It's going down sometimes because of noise just the inherent volatility in the market. And as human beings, we like to explain things. I understand that need for it. So whether it's an economic data point or whether it's some geopolitical event, uh, there's always a reason that you can find in hindsight. Uh, but as an investor, none of that does you any good, does it? Right? What, what good does that reason after the fact do you if investing is about the future? And oftentimes, yeah, it is, it's a little the, bit of revisionist history for sure. Yeah, when the news is at at its worst, the, the 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 question is not what has happened, but you know, is it going to continue to get worse or is it going to get better? Right. So that's you know, in and of itself, like that to me is the only usefulness of the the let's call it the mainstream financial media is as kind of a sentiment gauge, right? Where if they're doing a markets in turmoil special uh, that you know then <laughs> the average person's talking about it if they have like the, the uh bitcoin price flashing on the screen now the average person is thinking about bitcoin if they have crude oil prices or gas prices and anything that they have they add to their ticker okay now you know where sentiment is that you know may not do anything with that information but you know, if there's one positive thing I could say about it, it would be that, that, uh, you know, when sentiment reaches an extreme, they're all over it, right? Uh, because that's, that's, it. that's, that's what it. people want to talk about. <laughs> and that that's a reminder of like, uh, I'm going to fast forward to 2022, but I'm thinking about 2008, 2009, the markets in turmoil kind of headline and the, the sweep in cutting into individual shows happening on financial networks. That was a very specific moment in time where like the sentiment was social media wasn't what it is now, obviously, but but sentiment was kind of being dictated by talking heads. And I think we've talked a bit about that before, too, where it's a different world now. So I want to fast forward to this mix of sentiment and reality of where we are now and talk a little bit about recession, looming of recession, whether yeah. or not this recession will look like a different recession. But if you listen to to the Fed or to the media, everything is still like kind of okay right now because it's more of like a what have you done for me lately and things are a little bit different. 
But you know, we're in a recession. Sometimes there's inflation that isn't transitory. Most times now, GameStop is a good investment sometimes. Like starting with the first one though, the quick question, because I only have 30 minutes with you. Are we in a recession right now? And how should a regular person who goes to work every day, rents their apartment, has a 401k and these real world responsibilities be measuring what a recession is and whether or not we're in one or we'll be in one right now? Yeah, I think if you ask the person on the street, are we in a recession? Most of the, most likely the answer is going to be yes, because it feels like that because their wages are not keeping up with prices. And, and mm-hmm. in terms of the you know official definition, you know, you, there's many ways you can define it in the U.S., there's an organization called the National Bureau of Economic Research, like a real mouthful there, <laughs> MBER, hmm. right? And they determine well after the fact when a recession has begun, but they don't use any quantitative exact metrics, right? So, it, you know, for a long time, people talked about two consecutive quarters of GDP. That's a pretty good one. I mean, the last 10 times we saw negative GDP for two consecutive quarters or more, the U.S. was in a recession. So this time around, they don't like that that definition. And, you know, in hindsight, they might come back and say that that it is. And if, certainly if we get another quarter or two of, of negative growth, it would be hard to deny that. But I think it's it's pretty fascinating that the three people who last year were telling you that inflation was transitory, that would be uh, Powell, Yellen, and Biden, <laughs> are all now saying, Right, with uh, not any equivocation that we're not in a recession. Not only are we not, we're not going to be in one. And that's very hard to stomach when you just look at some of the data points. When you look at consumer sentiment has, has never been this low in history. Every time it's been this low in the past, we've been at or in a recession. If you look at the yield curve and how inverted it is, we've never seen it like this without a recession following. So even if you don't believe we're in it, there's enough signals and data points, and the wage one is an important one, Rob, because that's the real thing people care about, right? Their, their wages yeah. are not keeping pace with inflation, and inflation is the big topic of the day for people, and rightfully so. If you if you can't uh, spend the same amount of money last month because your wages are not going up as much as price, that's a big deal, right? So, uh, yeah. you know, the, the counter to that would be the employment market, right? And the difficulty with that is... It's at times it's coincident to lagging, which in layman's terms means the unemployment rate can move up after the start of a recession. And so we haven't we haven't seen that the last recession, of course, pandemic hits unemployment rate, you know, spikes and throw that thing out. Right. That's totally different. But we've seen recessions in the past where the uh, employment has continued. If you look at the 1973-75 recession, you had jobs growth continue for eight months uh, and the recession had already started and then it started to turn down. So if we're looking at leading indicators in the job markets, we're seeing layoffs increase, right? We're seeing jobless claims go up. We're seeing the number of job openings go down. And so that, to me, all suggests there's going to be at some point a slowdown uh, in the future. So all that said, so that's, you know, what does an investor do with any of that? What is the average person? Nothing. Like, you know, are we in it? Or are we not in it? it? The question is, how long is it going to last? Like this period, whatever you want to call yeah. it. I, I would call it a recession because, look, the markets are down. How, home prices, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, are going to soften. They're going to come down. Um, you know, peace, people's net worth is going down and their incomes are not keeping pace uh, with inflation. And we have all these other factors, uh, you know, in, in addition to that. So to me, <laughs> 
that's that's a recession. So, but I understand why that, people in power don't want to uh, admit that because you know we have elections coming up and other other things. And that's right? what, but, that's what I was going to get yeah. to. You know, like yeah. Jerome Jerome Powell's kind of locked in right now. He's good until twenty twenty four, whatever it's going to be. That said, do you? I mean, how how do you think about sentiment and how do you think about like emotion for these elected officials? Do you think we're in a situation where it's like you know? If we say too much doom and gloom and put that out there, then it really dramatically changes the way that people spend money and the way that do you think people even even pay attention to the same thing that politicians pay attention to now? Or is this more like political theater at this point? What would what would prevent our president or and this is not a political conversation, obviously, or the head of the Fed or anyone from just looking at the facts and thinking about it, you know, objectively to say, yes, here's what it is and here's what it means. Why would that not be a part of the conversation to the general public right now? And yeah, that's more of an opinion just, question. No, I hear you. And that look, both parties are, are guilty are guilty of this. They just can't. Yeah, for sure. They can't sure. be honest, right, with the American people. And and last year they couldn't be honest in saying, look, we during the pandemic, and I didn't ag- agree with a lot of it, but okay, most people seem to uh, believe the right thing to do is throw as much money as possible at it, and we'll worry about it later. Yeah, uh, the Jerome Powell uh, meme of him blasting a machine gun <laughs> full of money everywhere is just one of those things that's that's ubiquitous now in all and not just in finance everywhere, you know. Right. So you you increase the money supply by forty percent in two years. You borrow six trillion dollars and give a lot of it out for free. Right. That produces a lot of good things initially. Right. Growth goes up. There's a boom in the stock market. Boom in the housing market. Uh, everybody's feeling good you know (laughs) you're trading your favorite uh meme stock and and it's only going in one direction so all those buying bankrupt (laughs) calls and bankrupt companies all the good stuff that's that's right (laughs) so that was a lot of fun but now that we've seen the other side you have to you have to own that to agree uh, to agree to agree and say look part of the inflation we're seeing today maybe not all of it but a good part of it was because of those policies now we have a decision to make and, and look, the, the markets have made the decision for the Fed, right, where they were forced to do an about face and hike rates and start shrinking their balance sheet, right? And the money supply growth has stalled now. The last few months hasn't grown for the first time in a decade over a three-month period. And the deficit is shrinking, right? And so that's, yeah. you know, we just passed a new bill. But all of those things are kind of happening in response to that, the, where the markets have forced kind of the government and the Fed to say, slow down here. We need to take the medicine here. We need to break the back of inflation. Uh, and that's going to cause some short-term pain, but in the long term, we're going to be better off. But uh, you know, coming back to the initial point, they can't say that or won't say that. And it's just, it blows my mind, particularly with the Fed, uh, that, that every single press conference that they have, I don't know if you watch those things, but they're comical yeah. at this point. It, every question. I watch them for that reason. I don't, yeah, don't want to miss a meme or something. Every question, right? yeah. Mr. Powell, oh, wow, uh, Chairman Powell, thank you so much for taking my question. Uh, <laughs> yeah, why did you do? Why did you do too. seventy-five instead of fifty or instead of a hundred? Well, who cares? <laughs> like that's, and then he's talking about supply chains and the war and this and that, and and as if nothing they did had brought about the results, right? Like you know, yeah. instead of asking the real questions. Why didn't you start hiking rates earlier? Why didn't you uh, stop buying mortgage bonds when you saw the housing market 
just absolutely on fire and hitting new highs and, and affordability collapsing month after month, right? Um, for some reason, nobody's allowed to ask those questions. But anyway, nah, it's, it's, it's just, yeah, but you know what? You're right, though, because everybody also, everybody also looks at this in a way where it's like they're thinking about their position in that press room, too. Like nobody wants to upset, in my opinion, there. Yeah. Everyone thinks about themselves. And that's why, like, the inflation conversation is an important one to have, too. And you brought it up a bunch here. And I think that I use your Twitter account more than anything else. You're one of my, my favorite followers, no question. I think that's the same for a lot of people. But just the raw statistics on where we are relative to the rest of the world is something that you continually post about where we are with inflation, the thought process around sort of, you know, the way that regular people should be thinking about inflation and some of the other indicators that go with it. You've always been really good to publish. The last year, everything got super crazy, obviously. We talked a bit about it, I think, uh, at the start of the pandemic, where like bonds and Bitcoin and Michael Jordan rookie cards and everything was moving in tandem. It became correlated in this weird way. It yeah. all moved together. And that was weird. You know, one-year treasuries are at a 14-year high as of yesterday, but we'll get to that. That's a separate thing that you brought up too. But after that crazy run from the COVID bottoms, things got super crazy where home prices, like you said, went nuts and gas prices went nuts and, you know, baby formulas being sold in the black market and people who bought Ford Fiestas were getting calls from their dealer to buy it back for 20% over MSRP. <laughs> so now you have US inflation sitting at around 9%, barely better than than Brazil or some other countries that we've looked at over the course of the years. I'm not talking about Venezuela type numbers, but enough to pay attention when you look at it on a global scale, not yeah. wildly better than Russia or some of the countries that are involved in conflict right now looking by the numbers. Is there a way right now to just pull that plug, raise rates to an exorbitant point, and fix it. If you were Jerome Powell tomorrow, what's the thing that you're going to do to say, like, listen, we have to accept what we did may have created issues. The numbers yeah. are wild for a bunch of different reasons right now. Everything got more expensive. If you didn't get an X percent raise, you're actually losing money right now. Here's what we're going to do. If there was one silver bullet that existed, I'm sure everybody would use it. But if there was one thing you could do right now to curb inflation immediately and see immediate results, what would that be? Yeah, it would be treat it like an emergency that it is. So treat it like you treated the financial markets in March 2020 when you didn't wait to the meeting and you cut rates down to zero pretty much immediately, right? Immediately. On the downside, on the fears of a depression and fears of deflation, and all of that could be defended, right, at that point in time, right? They're just going to throw everything out because we didn't know, okay? Um, we can de debate after what, what they did when when they should have hiked and clearly it should have been earlier but why on the downside do you treat it like an emergency but all of last year we're seeing inflation rate go up month after month and you're just sitting there at zero percent and treat it like the emergency is which means inflicting more pain right now they're doing it slowly the, the job is going to get done it's going like they uh, it seems like they, they recognize now they have they have to keep moving in that direction they have to start pushing down demand which is already occurring rob so we're seeing that and and powell can't say he keeps talking about soft landing hopefully there's a soft landing yeah we hope so but if you look back in history when you have inflation as high as it is and you try to break it by raising interest rates and you're in a recession which we think we're in a 
you know, soft, that's not really, a, there's no soft landing scenario, right? Asset prices. Yeah, that's why I was saying like the, <laughs> I'm trying to figure out the Charlie ripped the bandaid off move because I know that in your, in your heart of hearts, you know, there's a way to just like fix this right now. Again, one of the smartest people I know is to rip the bandaid off right now and not slowly and incrementally get back to that point. Does that, would that have crazy negative adverse well, effects I, for the regular I, person? I don't, it's hard to, the, the thing about the Fed, uh, what's fascinating is it's hard to say, cause you can never, pr- why they usually win is you can never prove the counterfactual. Right. So you, we can never mm. prove what would have happened if they didn't do what they did uh, in 2020. Z, right? right. So they're, that's why their bias is always to do more, because if if they do a lot and it's not enough, they say, well, we just need to do more. Right. And eventually things will get better. Right. So I think the why you why they should have moved much quicker and even now just get it over with is you need to break the psychological impact of inflation a lot of its inflation expectations and people have got used to prices going up they've become more comfortable with that and you need to break that mentality and so for me why do we trust here's the big question rob and i ask no one has a great answer for this right we're you know as a free market capitalist system right everyone celebrates that fact all of the western nations that that are comparable to us the same and yet we all have these central banks that are controlling one of the most important things in the economy, which is the in- interest rate, right, on money. And so why do 10 p- people sitting in a room, these Fed governors, get to decide what the most important, one of the most important factors for an economy is? And why do we trust that they're going to get that right, right, with all of the evidence that they've gotten it wrong time and time again, right? So uh, Greenspan's easy money policies led in part to the dot-com bubble, right? Bernanke's uh, uh, easy money policies uh, led to the, in part to the housing bubble. And he denied, right, that it was going on in the midst of it, right? And and we know what happened thereafter, right? And then we have Yellen and Powell's easy money policies leading to where we are today. So why do we trust that they're going to uh, get it right now, moving in the other direction? I don't have that confidence. So I would prefer the markets to determine interest rates, not a centrally planned body, right? Somehow we get, you know, we go to the supermarket and the food is there, right? We go to the store and and our needs are net, uh, met from a bottom-up standpoint, right? People know what demand is and that demand is met. But we have this kind of faith that this central body is all knowing and they're going to figure out that perfect interest rate and that perfect uh, balance sheet, right? How much to make the economy, uh, you know, maximize employment and put inflation at, you know, they came up with this 2%. Why 2% and not 3% or 1%? Like, it's just imagine. So it's, it's just a strange, and we're not the only ones though, right? Look at ECB exactly. and the Bank exactly. of Japan. It's all of these, you know, for the most part, free market capitalist systems still are hanging on to this, in my belief, antiquated system. Um, even if you believe there's a role for the Fed as in terms of like the lender of last resort or a crisis or, you know, the, I think the FDIC system makes some sense for people to have confidence 
in terms of their going their money in the bank. There's, there's not going to be a run on that bank, right? That you need to have some stability and and perhaps we can debate that, right? A true libertarian would say, no, even that is not necessary because then people should figure out. Yeah, no, you know, there should be no but, trusted third yeah, party that's right. making decisions on your behalf type of thing. And, <laughs> exactly. And then that, but then you start going down that path where, where like Web3 fixes this and people start talking that's crazy. Right. So you can't go too far to the left. You know what I mean? You can't that's go too far. When it comes but to how, about we st- how about we start with just the, they can't, they're not doing a good job setting that interest rate. And I don't, I'm not saying I would do any better. I mean, there's things like the Taylor rule, which ties it. It's like more of a systematic thing where you would tie it to, you know, inflation and unemployment and come up with a number and it would be much higher than it is today. If you use that rule, right. Any systematic system would be much higher than it's been the last 15 years, right. They're systematically keeping inflation, keeping their interest rates lower than what, uh, you know, what kind of market forces would project it to be. And so then you'd have to ask the question, what's been the, what's the consequence of that? And is that a good thing for an economy to have that? And so for a long time, people thought, yeah, well, what could be bad about that? Right. We're a developed economy. (laughs) We don't have to worry about inflation. Inflation is an emerging market thing, right? We, you know, we talk about Argentina, Venezuela, the U.S. doesn't have to worry it's about. An, it's such not things. our problem yeah. thing. It's not, not our problem. Where the where the United States, there'll never be a problem. We have to deal with hyperinflation. Is something that that's right. Other countries, they look yeah. at it like it's some other person's problem. That's right. And it and it's no look to be fair, it's not hyperinflation yet, right? And hopefully, it never gets to that point. And, and yeah, I'm t- I don't want to be. The, I don't want to be a doomsday. No, I'm not. Like and that, I so think I don't think we're past <laughs> the point of of no return. I think we're starting to move in the right direction. There's many factors pointing to that commodity prices coming down and used car prices finally at least the rate of change leveling out a little bit right yeah, leveling yeah. out carvana is not coming to your house to, to yeah. buy your to buy your uh to buy your 99 camry for 20x yeah. the value anymore yeah. it's not happening anymore. so what That's would right. i do if i were power treat it like an emergency and then get out of the way and stop let the let the mortgage rate be the mortgage rate by the market like let let not let me not in the midst of a housing bubble rob push that mortgage rate down to where they did under 3%, 2.65%. Did it need to get Historically there? Historically low levels. Did it, did it need to get to that level during a housing bubble by any metric? I don't, that's like, the thing. Yeah. Like I don't, I, and this is a good segue to go into sort of a bit around housing. Yeah. There's, there was a moment in time where, you know, inventory was on the market, things were a little bit crazy, but it felt, it did kind of feel like uh, 2008-ish, 7-ish again, where I could have gotten like, an interest-only loan, and don't worry, everything's great, <laughs> and like one of those weird situations that I was just like, man, I'm a little bit older. These kids, and we've talked about this. I'm gonna age myself by saying it. it's like, man, these kids don't understand what this was like. They've never seen <laughs> a real bear market or a housing bubble collapse or any of this stuff happen yet. But we're at a point now where it's like, you know, to mix this in to talk about a little bit about potential bear market or the bear market that we're in and yeah. housing. And all the dynamics that kind of feel a little bit like 08, 09. How close is this and what's different? Sort of how does it stack up historically to yeah. past bear markets and past housing bubbles? And granted, there was like that mini bear market, probably the shortest bear market ever at the start of COVID that we swung right out. One month, shortest ever. Yep. A one month bear market. And there yeah. were bear markets that have lasted like a year or two. Then we swung back out of it. We've been in a bull market now for 14, 15, 16 years where someone who's young has never seen a true bear market, has never seen a housing bubble. How close does this feel to past bear markets and past housing bubbles? And how close are the parallels that we should be making right now? 
Yeah. So the way I look at, so I did a study of, of bear markets and I put uh, out a post, you know, called every bear market is different. And that's the first thing investors should think about is don't, don't think you're going to find the perfect analog ever to anything because <laughs> every situation is different. Right. And let's just start this, out with this the time fact will be that, different as the, as a bad mantra sometimes. Yeah. But I agree well, with you every time that. is different when it comes to markets. Right. Like I, I, I don't mm -hmm. think this is time is, is different, you know, in the sense that like prices mean revert eventually, like that's not different. Right. You can't, you can't have housing at unaffordable levels for two, you know, eventually it's going to mean revert. But in terms of yep. bear markets, there's, pretty much three types that we've seen historically. One is is the short and shallow. And that's what any new investor, that's all they know. So 2020, one month, we had 2018, just a few months, 2011, a few months, right? And then we run right back up to new highs. And and we've seen them in the past too. 1998 was a, was a quick one. But in recent years, since really the financial crisis, that's all we've seen. And so we're kind of on the cusp now of if if the low is not in right if the june lows don't hold now this could be shifting to perhaps one of the other two which is either the what i call you know, the long and deep bear market so that would be like the 0709 or 2000 to 2002 right which measured in years not months uh, or if you if for the prior generation 73 74 would be the bear market people used to talk about um, so those would be the long and deep. And then the third type is what I call a steady drip. And that's not, not huge, not like the long and deep ones, but they last a long time. And we saw that in the early 1980s with the bear market that lasted almost two years, but it, it was down you know, a little bit less than 30%. So S&P right now, peak to trough, uh, you know, beginning of the year it peaked, you know, a few days into the year it peaked, uh, went down 25% to its low in June. So we're somewhere, and that's like you know five six months. We're somewhere in between those two. So if those lows don't hold, now we're transitioning into something else. And I, I and I think that there's good reason for people to be concerned that it'll be uh, deeper than it is. Now that shouldn't you know you should never you should never count the market out in the sense that the steady state of the market is up. Right, it wants to go up. Right, there's long term there's growth earnings go up the market's gonna go up so if they're in the absence of bad news or in the absence of earnings going down or economic growth probably right, different things it it wants to go higher right there's there's growth there's inflation right there's new money coming in like there's the market wants to be higher but if we look at the average bear market during a recession rob the average decline it's higher than what we've seen so far so around 40% and we've, we've gone down 25%. But we've seen bear markets during recessions like 1990. We had a bear market uh, during a recession. It lasted only three months. It was only 20% duration. So all this should tell you that it's impossible to predict if this is going to be like 08 and 09. We're just going to have to react to the data. And every investor has to think about how much loss can they stomach in their portfolio and not only stick with it, but add to it when it goes down, right? And that's that's the key point. And that's a, that's a perfect, that's like the perfect way to sort of, you know, tie a lot of this together. And, uh, you know, you look at this way more analytically, I think, than a lot of new retail investors, obviously, but a lot of investors in general. I think you've been able to do a really good job of separating emotion a lot of times from the decision-making process and from the thoughtfulness that you put into a lot of this analysis and this research. 
but you know, I try personally to think through that, like, you know, be greedy when others are fearful type of risk reward scenario. Yeah. But also like you and I have kind of seen some of the bad stuff too, that again, a 25 year old now has never seen before. Yeah. But I will say this one thing, the, the idea of like this time, it'll be different retail in my mind. And this is a question. It's like one of the last questions I had for you around that risk reward proposition. Retail kind of has a seat at the table right now. And we saw some of that with GameStop and some of these crazy bankrupt stocks that get run up and literally, you know, hedge funds getting blown up because of, uh, because of margin calls that were affected by groups on Reddit. The craziest <laughs> type of retail investing I've personally ever seen in my life. I don't have the type of experience a lot of people do, but I lost a ton in 08, 09 of like new money. I had just started working. I thought it was like the end of the world. It yeah. scared me from thinking about the unrealized losses that I was looking at in an account. Yeah. Obviously, you don't lose the money until you sell. But looking at those numbers was hard to stomach. Do you think or do you see a world where this time it could be different and we don't necessarily get down to that 40% or like the, you know, get past yeah. 30%, which is something I look at too in terms of total losses across the board on equities? Because you have this aggressive buying of the dip and this new culture of like buying it low and, and averaging down, where a new retail investor is way more educated, has way more access to information, and is willing to make way riskier bets than in the past? Or do you think this is just one of those situations where the big money still controls a lot of the direction, the movement of the market, and until that dry powder comes back in and cements a true bottom, we can't get there? Yeah, that's a good question. That's, let's, as an investor, you should, you should always paint both sides, make the argument on both sides. And if we're, if we're looking, let's paint first the, the bearish scenario of why people feel like this is not the bottom. So every week or two, I've been putting out a poll since that June low saying, you think this is a low or you think it's going to go lower? And majority will be a part of that poll next week. It's very yeah. linear and it's a real, it's a good sort of charting that's happening Maj right now. Majority from the beginning, it was over. It was like 75% said, no, this is not the low. We're going lower. Now it's down to 60%. So if the market keeps going, that it'll probably get, if it keeps going up, it'll, it'll get more people into the bullish camp. 50 -50. Right. But yeah. you know, why are people skeptical? Well, they have good reason, right? They're hearing that word recession, so they're confused, right? They're, they they know that inflation, at least for a few more months, is going to outpace wages, right? So that factor is not away, going away. Earnings are still um, are, are still up, like they're you know, they've just started contracting, is what I'm saying, and and but, so but very much in focus now too, in a way they probably weren't until like a month ago. Yeah, so well, there, there's going to be some margin compression, right? So in in the initial stages of the boom. Um, my favorite example is the, one of the home builders, uh, they had a conference call and, and um, they were talking about the price they were selling for a new home and lumber prices, if you remember, during the initial stages of the pandemic exploded to the upside, right? It was one mm -hmm. of the first commodities really to just, it doubled and, and, and more, right? And, uh, and so they used that as a reason to increase their prices, the home builder. Then last year the price of lumber came crashing down and they asked this same ceo are you going to reduce your prices now and he said you know just matter of factly no we're going to take it to margin he said and so you know, because there's so much demand why should i cut prices even though my input costs have gone down right and so that was last year and now you're just starting to hear the reality if you listen to walmart or target of of companies saying 
they, they, they're having a harder time and they don't want to necessarily try to pass on all of those input costs to their end consumer because they're worried about alienating them. They're, they're thinking, you know, yep. they're going to go somewhere else, right? This is, they're, they're supposed to be the low price, uh, you know, retailer. And, and so they're pushing that out. So you have all of those factors. So you got earnings, recession, the Fed is going to continue to hike interest rates, right? We know for at least a few more meetings, the expectation is through year end. Right. And and we still have Powell and Yellen and Biden. They haven't acknowledged that there's even a recession. yet. And so if you if you and that only matters to the extent that what you say before, if if that's if it's somewhat of a self-fulfilling prophecy where people hear that they're in a recession and then they start to pull back at some point on their spending. Well, that that would be an additional factor. Right. As well. So yeah, all those easy to paint the bear side when you're down, right? As much as we're down, we have growth stocks down greater than 50%. If you look at the ARC innovation, it was down almost 80% at the lows, right? You had many, you know, companies that, tremendous companies that lost 70, 80, 90%, right? So it's easy to paint the bear side, but let's, so, but your question was, is there any way we could, you know, this could be the low and there is no impossible in market. So, it would not shock me and shouldn't shock you either. If, if, hmm. if it happened in the past, it could happen again. So we had 1990, we had a recession and everyone called it a recession at that time. And the bear market still was only three months in duration and 20% decline. So could it happen again? Absolutely. I think the bull case would be that inflation is starting to come down. Now the Fed won't have to be as aggressive and now there's even talk, and if you look at Fed funds futures, they're pricing in actually rate cuts next year. And yeah. you know you could view that one of two ways. If you're a bear, you'd say, well, they're going to be cutting because there's a recession. They're going to be you know acknowledging it at that point. If you're a bull, you're going to say it's because inflation has come down and the Fed feels okay that you know they maybe they overshot. Like because if you listen to Powell in the last meeting, he said now we're at neutral. Right, that's right. what he considers to be a neutral rate, which is unbelievable at two percent with nine percent inflation. So nothing would shock me, Rob. As an investor, figure out what your out what your your comfort zone in terms of allocation is. Right, the, you know the the, the temptation, the, the mentality to have is to be all in or all out, and I think for most people that that doesn't work well. Right, so let's say it is the bottom. You're going to wish you had some exposure here. Right on the way up. And if it's not the bottom, you're going to wish you weren't all in because you can buy more on the way down. If you have 20, 30, 40 years to invest, if you're in your 20s and 30s and you're getting that paycheck, keep investing it and hope that it goes down more because that's the best thing. That's what's going to create really long-term wealth for you is a better valuation than we're in today. Because if we look at, we didn't get into valuations here, but if you look at, you know, big picture valuations, Stocks are still aren't cheap. Like maybe they're they're cheaper than they were when we start started the year. But, but, but the, by, the multiples on these growth stocks are still crazy in a lot of situations. Yeah, I mean they're they're much better than they were. And and look, if if growth rebounds here and and, and then maybe they're fairly. But it's not it's not March '09. It's not. It's you're not, not getting deals. You're not you're not getting those yeah. bottom deals. You know what it's, I mean? Like, like, and yeah, maybe we never get there. Right. That's the other exactly. thing because you don't owe you don't have to get there right either. So like waiting for that extreme fat pitch it may never come but um so there's a, a picture you could paint on both sides and that's how you should always be thinking and then when 
you get to one extreme like we got to in June where everyone's so negative. Uh, I like my instinct is to push back and say, well, wait a minute. Everyone's now talking about the price of oil and everyone's talking about you know, food prices. Everyone's talking about the Fed and, and everything. Well, OK, this is a situation. In addition to that, market's so oversold. Well, we can get a bounce here. So, you know, that's that's the way you have. Now we got a 15 percent bounce. You should start thinking about the other side. What could push us back down? So always be balanced, always be humble and just, you know, understand that this is a long it should be a long term game, Rob. It 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 you know, what we saw in that mania and early tell, you can't tell. You yeah. can't tell a 19-year-old with a Robinhood account that right now. Are you crazy? A long, well, hopefully long, they're talking learned, about weeks. They've, hopefully they've learned that lesson. I mean, if you didn't learn that lesson after last year, uh, you know, maybe some people came out of that unscathed. And if they did, good for them. I hope they did. I hope they made a ton of money on Agreed. on on the, their uh, GME calls and all the rest of it. Uh, you know, good for them. But they should know the odds are against that type of of behavior, right? It's just in the long run, you're going to give it back, right? So figure out a longer term investment plan, focus on your actual career and your job and what your passions are. If you love the market, that's fine. Follow the markets. You could do a little bit of trading, but for the most part, understand, have the humility to understand that 90 plus percent of professional money managers can't outperform that index, right? So what the are the best chances? Ones are are, <laughs> are 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 you know fifty three percent better than like better than the regular the rest of the entire general public. You know what That's I mean? Right. Their, their so, averages are not going to be. They're not. It's as close to fifty fifty as you would think. They're just doing it at a different level with bigger checkbooks. Like that's really the major difference and a little more information. Yeah, but the office. advantage what Rob, of, of the advantage of you and I, an individual investor, is you don't have that benchmark. You don't have that that a month to month thing to worry about you can invest for the long term based on what you want to do right what your goals are how much risk you want to take and for everyone that's different if you want to sleep at night and not worry about the market at all and just put your money in t bills well at least now you're getting paid a few percent <laughs> on your cash and <laughs> you know you can let everybody else debate the market but you know over the we, long run yeah, that's do... yeah that's gonna cost you <laughs> we could do a whole other episode, uh, just of T bills versus like individual equities, and who and and where like the and the idea of investing for fun and like uh, doing something more interesting versus something that's more of a guarantee. That could oh, be a man. whole episode within itself. Uh, absolutely, I think it would blow people's minds yeah. to know that most stocks, uh, you know, underperform T bills over the long run. Right? It, it would be crazy. I think a lot of people, yeah, kids get it. Kids have been beaten over the head with the you should invest in index funds if you don't know any better. But the idea of like T when you start getting T bills and start getting really deep in it, I think it would interest a lot of like, you know, 24, 25 year olds. They really knew the inner workings of it. But that's a whole other episode for another time. This was really, Good. really awesome to have you on. And it was one of those things where I think you hit it on the head at the end. They're not all gonna be like not investment advice ever, but assuming you get a bunch a bunch more hanging curveballs because we got them during like this unprecedented moment of wealth creation for a new generation of investor at the beginning of COVID to now, that was throw a dart at a board. It's gotten a little harder, but it doesn't mean the opportunities aren't there. And that goes for everything from alternative assets to equities to, you know, to bonds, to housing, to every, there's not a single part of the market right now that doesn't have opportunity and every bull market, right. every bear market that exists. Yeah. And but, the more I mean, it goes down, the, with, the um, more opportunity. No, nah, the yeah. more it goes down, the better. That, yeah. Again, not investment advice, but you said it. It's no. just like the idea of, I think that that's the one, as someone who's getting a little bit older and has seen a few things, I think at this point, you've seen a little more than me, most likely. 
But there is a maturity level that comes with this younger investor now with even if it's just that mantra of buy the dip, the idea of like cost dollar averaging and doing something that wasn't even a thought when I was 17, 18 years old and just starting to dip my toe into the equities market. They treat things more like a job than like a hobby where I throw some money and see where it goes. And they, if they leave, you know, I'm seeing younger investors leave a little bit of dry powder on the sidelines for an opportunity. And they kind of celebrate when things go down in a way where it's like, all right, I get it for cheaper right now and I get more of it. And it's at least it's encouraging to see some of that where it's a little more thoughtful than just throwing money at Apple and hoping it goes up and then being pissed when it goes down 15%, you know? Yeah. No question. But it's good to see. But either way, I mean, we typically end with a couple of quick questions and I want yeah. to get some, get, you are somebody who, uh, again, this was a, a super, super interesting conversation. I know a lot of people are going to benefit from it one way or the other, at least to think about finance and think about equities a little bit differently, but some quick little ones that are a little bit left field, but to start, let me ask you what you think, um, or do you think there will be a big financial impact from one party, one political party versus another winning the 2024 election? Or do you think it's it's really the Fed's in charge of a lot of what's happening right now, and that will likely stay the same? Yeah, so let's let's be... That's let's a loaded be, question, by the way. So no, my, that's my bad, I'm throwing I, that in as the I'm easiest fine. first one. Yeah, good. Uh, let's, <laughs> let's just be data-driven about it and look historically, has there been any difference for the markets in terms of who's in charge and pretty much statistically no right it doesn't matter and that's that's it's that's not to say that there aren't certain policies that a president or a senate or congress can can enact that could be bad or good it could be but it's that the u.s economy is at this point and and for the last 50 years is so big diversified and bottoms up driven that one individual, thankfully, is not going to change that very much in either direction. So that's that's a feature of not a bug of of our system that you should you know we know everyone goes crazy every time we have that presidential. Like, the world is ending if your guy isn't in, right? It's like yeah. slow down. All right, we have four years. It's, you, you, there'll be another vote. People don't like it. There'll be a new person in there, right? So, yeah, I promise you, nothing dr too dramatic is going to change. Yeah, that's a good thing and a bad thing, but that's so, how the system is intended to work. That's right. I'm very much of, of the Ronald Reagan school, where he once said, "You know, government's not the solution uh, to your problem or our problem. Uh, government is the problem, right?" So, more often than not, I would rather see them do nothing. That's my personal preference because they have the tendency when they do something to be reactive right after the fact or influenced by lobbying or any any number of other factors right that you know at times there could be good legislation good legislation but it's few and far between so i have no idea i think it, the let's go shorter term in in november this november there's likely to be a landslide in the opposite direction and what that'll do is that will stop all spending bills for the remaining two years, right? So nothing will get, nothing else will get done in terms of new financing. And so, if you're, <laughs> if you're of the belief that we need that, right, to curb inflation, um, that's going to be a hit, of course, to economic growth, hmm. right? And so the Republicans might be happy about that because that'll help them in 2024. The 2024 election. Yeah. Well, no. There's been no president in the last 50 years, Trump included, that has gone through a recession and has been reelected, president or their party, yeah. right? So it's the economy, stupid. That saying is pretty much true in the last 50 years. You can go every single time we've had a recession, 
from 2008, right, under Bush. Then, then uh, you know, Obama comes in, go back to uh, 2000 uh, and, and, and the change over there, right? And Bush comes in, right? Clinton was in, the Democrats were in, then you had a recession 2000, 2001, right? The dot-com peak. So every, every single one uh, has, there's been a shift. And if, if we're in a recession now, that's going to be hard in 2024 for that party. So we'll see. I, that is a great Charlie fact. I wish I would have known. I should have known that before going into this. I did not know that I'm leaving. I learned something every time I talk to you. I learned like well, 10 people new blame today, the, the was, party. That was a good well, it's funny. People blame the party. That's it. Whether it's their fault, they that's get it. the credit. If it do, does well, they get the credit. Every, that's the upside. Yeah. But the downside, they're going to get the blame. Right. Everything is a trailing indicator, except with presidents. It's That's whatever right. happened is uh, what have you done for me? It's like right now it's going well. I did that. Right now it's going bad. Someone else did that. That's, That's right. When inflation comes That's down, it's going to be uh, the doing of of President Biden. But on the that way up, yes. it was Putin's. No it was Putin's inflation on the way up. Right. That's, that's the, that's the game though, Rob. Thank God. That was intended to be a short. (laughs) Thankful we're not in politics. That was was a lightning round question. Sorry. Yeah. That was a lightning round question. I think, so this one's going to be equal. That was a good answer though. This next one's going to be, uh, is an equal size rabbit hole. So I'm going to throw this one to you quick. Yeah. Cause we didn't touch on this at all. And you have, you and I have talked about in the past, but what would it take for a digital currency to replace fiat and replace cash? If there was oh, one thing that you felt like would do, and I'm not talking about like yeah. the India taking money out of circulation thing. If there was okay. one thing that the U.S. would do, what do you think it would be that would make digital currency real? Gosh, I think it's a, I think it's somewhat of a binary situation. Like re, when you say replace, like that's like El Salvador type of, of situation. So it's either going to be. Okay, yeah, I'm going yeah. all in. Okay. It's either going to be something really bad, right, in terms of hyperinflation there's chaos people are literally demanding looting in the the dollars worth yes really bad let's hope that's not the reason or really good that just freedom and markets and acceptance right china banned crypto right you can't you can't do it like to me that was a bullish very bullish thing when they did that for crypto in general right so you know as a replacement I, i you know it's it's not going to happen anytime soon but I'd say it'd be one of those two factors. And I think that the last few years has made the case that there needs to be an alternative. It doesn't have to be a replacement, but there needs to be an alternative to fiat as a system of checks and balances, right? So so you can't have uh, uh, your money supply increased by 40% and not people not seek out an alternative, right? So we know what Bitcoin's uh, supply increase is going to be, right? That's you know, you could, we can debate whether that's, you know, justifies X or Y price all day long, but we know there's a limited supply, right? And that's, that's in essence, what money needs to be long-term. So we don't need it to be crypto, but we need a currency with stability that people can rely on that we're not just going to print more of because we feel like it. And we feel like there's, there's only good that can come from it. And, you know, so hopefully we've learned that lesson and we don't need to make that shift because my, my instinct is it will be more of the bad side if we do see a shift to that, than than the good, but we'll see. I mean, you know, governments view anything, any encroachment on their power as a threat, 
right? And this is an, kind of an encroachment. So I don't think the transfer will go easily, right? If if there is a, a more of a transition, right? But it's it's I here. It's, that. that was a really, that was a good answer. It, it, it's part of the ecosystem, Rob. I don't, you know, there will be some form of it. We don't know who the winner, ultimate winner, would be or what price. But we know now that what that there's a reason for it and a need for it. And if you look at El Salvador and you make the case in terms of transaction cost and just the freedom, one of the reasons, big reasons they did it is people are sending money back there. It's a big part of their economy and they're paying all of these enormous fees. They got to make it easier money. and cheaper Antico- for, for money to come from other Ex- places. Exactly. Right. So like there will be good things that come out of uh, the crypto you know, ecosystem, regardless of, of if, if, if you believe it has to be a replacement for, for fiat. It doesn't, it doesn't have, have to be, right. I'm not like a maximalist in that sense, but I think it's a nah, good. No, but you answered, yeah. you answered the question right, because I was trying to get this, I was trying to ask a sensationalist question and get a sensational answer out of you, but nah, you're too smart for that. You're I not going to take the You're bait, not going to humor me with the, <laughs> you're, not, you're not going to humor me by saying World War Three. That's what means yeah, <laughs> currency. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I was hoping we would go there, but you're better, you're better than I am at coming up with those answers. So last question I'll give you. Yeah, and we always, let's do it. We always end these conversations with um, like, what's the best money you ever spent? We try and tie it in and, and put a period on the sentence, but I'm yeah. going to change it up a bit with you because you're the smartest yeah. guy in the room right now, as you just proved. What's the biggest missed investment that in your heart you saw from a mile away, but your brain didn't allow you to pull the trigger? So it's kind of like, what's the best money you never spent, if you will, in terms of the life of Charlie Bolello? Yeah. So I I think it's, it's just uh, not doing what I'm doing now sooner, right? We're getting, mm-hmm. starting my own thing getting the freedom to do what I want on a daily basis and try to create content that's helpful to people, to other investors, to be reading and thinking. And, and to me that's that and writing, and that's the biggest reward, um, you know, for me on a daily basis where I end the day, you know, doing the things that I love to do. And so, uh, it's not easy to get to that point where you can do that, but you know, for me, uh, if I had to change one thing, I would just try to do it earlier. And it's it's always a big risk, right? But uh, at the end of the day, uh, that's that reward. You you can't you can't put a price on that, Rob. And you know you're doing nah, what you freedom love. Freedom and, and investing and, and, and yeah. yeah, doing what you love and investing in yourself is always like part of the mantra. And it's kind of what a lot of people have said on this on these episodes. And you ask them about where they put their time, their money, their effort. Everyone has very similar similar responses yeah. and the people that kind of are building the future are doing it like that, doing it, doing the thing they yeah. love, whether it's content or finance or whatever, it all comes yeah. together if you care about it. No right. Question. And that's why, and that's, look, there's different, different reasons why you want to create wealth, but you know, the biggest reason for me and for, I think for most people is just to have independence and freedom with their time to do what they want to, to do what they feel valuable. And every, everybody has a different answer to that question. You know, some people it might be that's it, man. Time is currency, you know, dude. That's charity. It might be some people might be sitting on a beach. I can't do that. For, I I do like that as well, but I can't do that for too long, right? I'll get very antsy. <laughs> but you know, so just you know, build wealth to create freedom for yourself to do what you want to do. I mean, that's you know, that's uh, that's that's a good goal to have. I think for anybody. The, the ultimate goal to have. Charlie, end it there, man. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you for dropping Absolutely. these gems. went a little bit long today, but I think it was 100% worth it. Everybody who's not following Charlie on Twitter or not signed up for the Compound Newsletter is doing themselves a disservice. You have to do that immediately. Not in, I'm not giving any investment advice, but Charlie's life advice that you're going to get from being a part of that is enough for you to make your own decisions. He's one of the smartest people I know 
one of the smartest people on Twitter and the smartest newsletters that you could possibly subscribe to. Other than that, Charlie, we'll speak again soon. Thank thanks, you so much. Thanks for being so much, on, Rob. Appreciate it. Thank you. Great thanks. to be with you. Awesome combo. That was episode 14 with my guy, Charlie. That one went a bit long, but I probably could have gone for a few more hours. But to save you from hearing me for that long, you should follow Charlie on Twitter ASAP. He's a more accurate source for the current inflation rates and the most important economic indicators. And they affect everybody. And he has a way of really framing it in the most logical possible way. Charlie is, is honestly an expert at cutting through that noise. Charlie really just gets it. This coming week on Rally, someone who always thought about money but wrapped it up as art, Andy Warhol, but not a painting or a print. We've got the Polaroid that he took of soccer star Pele. There was a really famous set of Andy Warhol Polaroids of the famous faces that he would interact with on a regular basis. In 1977, when Warhol took this photo, Pele was this huge global star, and that series really represented Warhol's connection to the media and content. The Warhol Pele Polaroid IPO opens on Tuesday, August 23rd. It's $26,000 IPO, $4 per share. And finally, as a reminder, do not listen to me or anyone for investment advice. Always do your own research and be sure to read the disclaimer on RallyRD, RallyRoad.com before making any investment. All investments involve risk. This is no different. And past performance is never an indication of future performance. I'm Rob Petrozo. I'll be back in two weeks with more. Until then, you can find us by following at Rally on Instagram, at OnRallyRD on Twitter, and on RallyRD.com for all info on upcoming offerings and events. Thanks for spending some time with us. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss anything in between.